At least 28,000 residents and workers have died from the coronavirus at nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Across the country, patients and workers combined represent a third of all U.S. deaths. How did this happen, and is anything going right? The Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies has some answers. The partnership's directors are on a valid podcast today. I'm Jennifer Shveta-Jordan, here with analyst Elisa Grishman. Hi, Elisa. Hi, how are you? Great. Before we go any further, um, we're going to share a very passionate uh, testimony from Perry Jude Radisic. She's from Disability Rights, Pennsylvania, and she was speaking to officials in the state's health department last week. So this is a disaster. Uh, I know we call it a pandemic, but I think in a disability context, we're looking at this as a disaster, much like a hurricane might come through. And if these were rising waters, what would the state be doing? What would emergency, what would Pima be doing in the case of rising waters? So what we are looking at is a rising water and people are dying just like in a hurricane and the waters are rising and people are dying and that's what we're looking at and we're standing here in awe listening to uh, a, a state telling us that uh, you know they they don't have enough staff to take care of people with rising waters and it's shocking to us. You have to understand that this is shocking to us because we are seeing people with functional needs and people with disabilities dying because they don't have masks. They don't know how to access masks. They are watching their nursing staff come in with the same protective equipment that they've worn all day. And we've heard stories of staff working for 15 days with the same PPE. And we understand what this process is. A nursing home has to request it. And I understand there's education and outreach going on, but the waters continue to rise. And this is why we're asking these questions. This is why we're pushing the state. This is why we keep raising these needs. And the same answer back to us is we need specifics. Well, we've given you some specifics in other meetings and nothing is changing. And this is our frustration. So uh, Perry shared this, this was recorded as she spoke to Pennsylvania's Disability Integration Task Force uh, Friday. And uh, with us today, we have reporter Francesca DeBecco. Hi, Francesca. Hi, Jennifer, thank you for having me. Yeah, she's covering nursing homes for Unabridged Press and she's here to start today's conversation in earnest. Uh, Thank you so much. I will start by introducing our guests. We are joined by co-executive directors of the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, Herman Luis Perotti and Shailen Sluzalis. Now you work to ensure that everyone has equal access to emergency programs and services before, after, and during disasters. Herman and Shailen, thank you so much for being here. This is Shailen. Thank you so much for having us. This is Herman again. Thank you, Honorable Colleagues, for having us again. 
Absolutely. We are so happy to have you here, um, especially because we know that back in April, you created a national survey to see what organizations are doing to help individuals in these nursing homes and other institutional facilities. First, can you share with us what kind of response you received to this survey and how many organizations responded? Yes, thank you, Francesca. This is Shaylin. For folks that may not know, the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies is the only U.S. disability-led organization focused exclusively on cross-disability, inclusive public health and emergency management, community organizing, policy education, advocacy, technical assistance, training and response for equal access and full inclusion of people with disabilities and people with access and functional needs before, during, and after disasters and emergencies. And when we put out this national call to action for a survey. Um, it was between April 20th and May 1st, we sent out a survey to our national partners and colleagues, um, Centers for Independent Living, Protection and Advocacy Agencies, advocates and disability related organizations to obtain a national snapshot on not publicly available information from our allies um, and partners on congregate settings and the institutionalization of people with disabilities um, during the COVID-19 pandemic focused on people that are working with people in these institutions and other facilities and working to get people out of those institutions and congregate settings. Um, we got a total of 108 responses um, from several states across the nation. That's really great. That's a pretty good response. And, and five from Pennsylvania, as I know you were starting off with today. Very great. So um, what did your survey reveal? Was there anything telling uh, when you got the response? Um, were these organizations, in fact, um, doing their best to get um, these individuals out of the nursing homes or other institutional facilities? So this is Shaylin. Um, one thing I would say was a telling thing is the lack of information that is publicly available for the partners and allies that responded to this survey. 50% um, of the respondents do not know how many people are in nursing homes or other congregate facilities in their state um, and how many are um, reporting accurate, accurate numbers um, from facilities and other congregate settings. As we in Pennsylvania know, as of today's number, it accounts for 3,086 long-term care residents that that's 68% of our Commonwealth. And that is only accounting for those mostly in nursing homes. There are many other long-term congregate settings like personal care homes, like what is commonly known as psych wards, often completely being ignored. And certainly the penal system, multiple types that we have in our state and they are not being accounted for in these numbers that the state is putting. So the 68% that is happening in congregate settings, you can surely account much bigger numbers in all congregate care settings. Yes, this demonstrates that the public is doing a potentially uh, good job in social distancing and other community guidelines that are we are allowed to, if we have consumer control, do in our homes in in dormitories, in hotels, in motels, certainly not in these congregate settings. This is Shaylin, and as we were working on this survey uh, back in April, conveniently uh, the Health and Human Services 
ordered uh, the the facilities to be reporting to the Centers for Disease Control. There was a bulletin that was released on April 19th, I'm sure we're all familiar with. Um, so we were able to incorporate a question that asked um, the respondents about numbers uh, being released prior to that bulletin and, and now after um, in that time between as it did close on May 1st. Um, and out of the 108 responses, 19 respondents said their state had reported COVID-19 cases and deaths in nursing homes and other congregate facilities prior to the um, HHS bulletin. 20 respondents said their state had not reported COVID-19 cases and deaths in nursing homes um, prior to the HHS bulletin. And, and 32 respondents said they did not know if their state had reported cases. In Pennsylvania, just today, um... The, the, the Department of Health, the Department of Health website began um, showing some statistics on, again, a, a, an amount of long-term care congregate settings, not all yet. As that is, comes out, we need to account that these numbers incorporate residents, as they call them, but also staff. Right. I was actually just looking at those numbers prior to joining the call today. Uh, it was really interesting to see the numbers by county and also by facility. Um, and it's really startling to think that they were not required to actually reveal these numbers beforehand. Um, so that's that, that's really telling a uh, piece of your survey. Um, and the other concern is, um, you know, not just you know the numbers being reported because we know it's way worse than than what the numbers are actually indicating because people are lagging behind on reporting. Um, but the case of are people do people know that they can leave these facilities? Do the family members know that they can take their loved ones out? And are people talking about whether institutions would hold the patient's beds in, in case they need to return for care. Do you know anything about that? And did your um, survey help you find any information regarding that? We in Pennsylvania hope that um, families and, 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 and those of us in the public that saw um, Secretary Levine take her family member out of such a long-term care institution it demonstrates, at least by an example, that it is an option. But to the point, no, Francesca, people uh, do not know that this is an option. And let me tell you that uh, you may discover in, in the state calls um, that there is not a, an understanding of the what we understand to be common nursing home transition issues from having an ID and a social security shortly to having enough money to open, you know, to, to start rent food, it, the, 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 just living out. There is, there is little support right now from the state knowledge on what does exist because Pennsylvania has been transitioning people out of nursing homes for over 30 years now. There are centers for independent living and a number of other nursing home transition entities that have been doing this for decades and um, a number of sales are pushing to, to be included in, in these talks. So as long now that the state is preparing a strike teams, they can include centers for the staff from centers for independent living, staff from the communities, staff from um, the DD councils, 
AAA universities truly to do an efficient job and one that is represented by Pennsylvania. Right. So it's a real lack of communication in regards to the rights that these individuals have and what the families can do to help. Um, it's really a, a, a sad scenario. Um, and I want to touch on another thing. Uh, with your survey, um, one of your goals was to call on organizations to reveal the issues that people with disabilities are experiencing in these facilities during the pandemic. And without actually being in there ourselves, we don't know exactly how bad it is. You know, many residents may not be able to let loved ones know what's even going on. And recently uh, we found out that um, in Pennsylvania, wireless phones and tablets are going to be distributed to some of these residents. Uh, do you think that'll be helpful in actually communicating with the public what exactly is going on inside of these facilities? It will help some. Pennsylvania is very rural once you leave, leave the main three cities, really. Yes, uh, I'm sure we can all relate of the, the ruralness of Pennsylvania and the, the lack of resources to, to even have, to maintain that service if it's available to them, to use it once it becomes available to them. Um, and then of course, depending on uh, where they're located, the, the connection availability. And that is, as this is implemented, that it, the, there is an inclusive learning curve for those that need it, which has not been mentioned at all. That's so true. And um, we first think of, well, can these stories finally be told once they're able to access this? Um, but the problem is, is that um, a lot of people are actually terrified to come forward with the cases that are happening because they're afraid of retaliation. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to one woman from the um, Center for Independent Living and she um, told me that there was a man who had a nanny cam and actually recorded um, inside a, a matter of abuse. And we know this is happening, um, but but he's really afraid to actually come forward and, and show this footage. And um, I can't verify that myself um, because I have not seen it, but there are many cases just like this. Um, so we know that it's, it's happening. There are many reports that residents haven't been given masks or gloves to protect themselves and they're in close quarters with COVID positive positive patients and uh, nurses and aides have been coming in and out of their rooms with the same masks and gloves on for days. Um, can you say more about these conditions and, and perhaps the civil rights violations that have occurred? This is Shailen. Um, thank you so much for bringing that up. And yes, uh, actually today we heard from lead attorneys on a class action case here in Pennsylvania, um, Rob Sachs and Teresa Blanco from the Schrager and Sachs um, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who have filed a case concerning um, the Pennsylvania Departments of Health Policy and Practice of denying appropriate safeguards and care to nursing home residents. Um, in the complaint, identified long-term care res facility residents um, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in violation of the Rehabilitation Act, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and federal and state regulations concerning inspections and investigations of long-term care facilities, including the Social Security Act and its implementing regulations 
and the Civil Rights Act as it applies to the federal nursing home reform amendments and the Pennsylvania Disease Prevention and Control Law. And in its most specific argument, it's using the FDA unauthorized practice of using hydroxychloroquine and along with zinc as a potential experimental treatment, along with, as you earlier mentioned, the lack of appropriate care with supply of PPE and in violation of disinformation along with the civil rights laws that Shailen just mentioned. The, the issue with these long-term care settings, many nursing homes and others missing and failing on their public health inspections is disastrous across our state. As we see one of the worst nursing homes um, COVID deaths being out of Brumal, and it's one that has failed its public health inspections year and year again. And it's, a system, it's something systematic across our Commonwealth and across the nation. And sadly, last year, CMS passed a new ruling that instead of every year that the nursing homes needed to pass the health inspections. And this is Shaylin. I think the main takeaway from this is that the issues in nursing homes, the abuse, the neglect, um, the lack of information is pre-COVID. It is the institutional bias and that, that people with disabilities should be placed into these congregate care facilities and that institutionalized care is better than individualized care in the community with supports and services to maintain independence. And the main takeaway from this is that, that COVID-19 has really just highlighted the issues that have been pre-existing for long long time now. Right. There are just layers and layers of issues here and um, the current circumstances are just bringing them even further into light. And I'm so glad that we're talking about them, but I'm so sad that we are talking them into relation of upwards of 28,000 deaths uh, coming okay. from um, these facilities and the virus. Um, you mentioned uh, some of the worst case scenarios, um, specifically in some facilities in Pennsylvania. I know the National Guard has been deployed to um, a handful of facilities, but right outside of Pittsburgh here in Beaver County is one of the worst cases, um, the Brighton Rehabilitation and Wellness Center. Um, 76 people have died there, um, and that's, that's a large number. And I, and I can't even grasp what must be going through the patient's minds when seeing military personnel enter their rooms. Um, like that quote we heard earlier, it really is like responding to a natural disaster. Um, and, and, and so I wonder how we can get it through each other's minds. If it is bad enough that we can deploy the military to help out these, um, you know, these facilities, then it should be bad enough for us to really care about what's going on, you know, for the patients and, and what is happening behind closed doors. The partnership has been implemented um, since 2016 has focused more primarily on disasters. Uh, so it, has, it, it responded to Harvey, it responded to Maria, where Phil and I were deployed to Puerto Rico. So we see time and time again, like Perry Jude's quote mentioned, when disasters happen, people with disabilities are the most forgotten. And if you are in, in any form of institution, don't expect people to come and save you. And now we're not seeing 
the difference we're seeing now is when there are natural disasters, it's regional. It's in the state. It's, it's in that area that the, the conversation is happening. This is nationwide and this is worldwide. Now, more than ever, something that our Senator Casey, we helped him write and develop. There is a piece of legislation in the Senate and in the House called the Ready for Disasters Act. It stands for the Real Emergency for Aging and Disability Inclusion for Disasters Act. One of its provisions would open Category B funding, which is FEMA funds for um, eligible nonprofits. Right now, Centers for Independent Living that often respond in disasters in, in, throughout the East Coast, throughout California and the West Coast in Puerto Rico, I can tell you, they are personnel that are going to shelter, that are responding with immediate personal care response and direct services and interpretation. And ultimately, crisis counseling. Sadly, time and time again, they're not funded for this. Right now, it's an issue in Pennsylvania. If we open Category B funds beyond the Red Cross, where more nonprofits could access it and further serve people in disasters, people in this pandemic, we could save lives. So the idea is if the county commissioners can claim natural disaster um, in a situation like this, then they would then receive the FEMA funds and be able to assist people with um, transitioning out of the nursing facilities or helping families take care of um, their loved ones that they've taken out. Um, that's the idea here, um, that this can be developed. That's correct. Right now, we, we, we are in very bipartisan times. What could be done now, as you're alluding to Francesca, you're correct. However, right now, the way PIMA, our Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency, developed this writing, as many other states have, these assistance goes to people who are homeless. So advocates in Pennsylvania are, are, are pushing and, and Within the partnerships, we are looking for facilitating the mechanisms to indeed, uh, as you began explaining, having counties declare uh, emergency public emergency disasters and amend their declaration, these assistance to include people in long-term congregate settings. So they could also be placed along in hotels, motels, and dormitories. And right, we, and it's not like a lot of those uh, places are being used right now. That would be the perfect place to, um, you know, actually assist those people in, in staying safe. And this is Shaylin, and the most important piece of all of this is for folks to be able to maintain safety, health, and independence, and for this to work for our state is that our state work alongside disability-led organizations like Centers for Independent Living and other providers that are able to help fill these gaps and bridge these gaps as they have been with the proper funding and support that is needed in order to do the work. Um, and so we know that community resilience is only possible when planning, response, and recovery is accessible to all and includes people with disabilities and others with function, access and functional needs as key members 
of the community preparedness and resilience initiatives. Um, and that is precisely what needs to happen with our state is, is working with these entities across the state, across the Commonwealth. Right. So we talked a lot about nursing homes, but um, like you mentioned, your survey also received a lot of information about um, group homes, uh, psychiatric institutions, uh, residential correctional, and other um, other facilities. Um, can you talk about talk about this at all? How does this relate to the scenarios um, in nursing homes? This is Shaylin, and the respondents of this survey work in are responding to the facilities that they work with and and alongside and help get people out of and and work with people inside of and we did ask advocates um you know about new barriers that they're facing on getting people out of these types of nursing homes and other congregate and, and institutional settings like you mentioned and, and the main barriers that folks are seeing um is that communication with people in these facilities, that the lack of access to communication with individuals, um, the, the lockdowns in, in areas preventing access to facilities, how nursing homes um, are locked down and, and no visitors are allowed. Um, and of course, as a common uh, barrier, red tape issues. Um, and, and as we just mentioned, uh, the funding barriers uh, that prevent getting folks out of these facilities. Now, just to, to add, um, just a couple of days ago, so, um, uh, the president did announce that there will be some guidelines coming out about opening up nursing homes. Um, we, we are not certain exactly what that means. Yeah, so... Um, Francesca? Yes. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt because please do. We we do have a question from uh one of our callers. She is asking about the gatehouse, which is in Wexford and trains quote unquote trains people to be independent, and it functions as a nursing home. And she's asking Herman and Shaylin, have you found it difficult to assess situations because not all congregate living centers fall under health department oversight? And uh, the gatehouse is overseen by the education department. That is exactly the issue that there are so many entities uh, regulating different congregate care settings. And as we see time and time again, they are not talking to each other. One, I mean, I, I, I'm, so, so we, we're not informed specifically of this one. Thank you to the caller for bringing it up. Um, one that we, uh, because of our previous work that we've done with the Judge Rottenberg Center in Massachusetts that still does um, shock, what they call therapy, and just recently, the, it's the only place in the country that does what is considered also known, right, as electroconvulsive, like you say, quote-unquote therapy? Correct, that is correct. And just recently, uh, the FDA passed a regulation that would prevent them from continuing this usage. However, with the pandemic happening, that seems to be, we're not getting clearance on how that is going to be executed. And again, in regulating who's doing what, they are also regulated by the, 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 the Department of Education. I'm sorry, Elisa's here as well. This is such a broad topic. It's it's impossible to just decide on one thing to mm -hmm. even touch on. You know, as a disabled person myself, I'm terrified 
in general, even before the pandemic, of ever having to be in any sort of nursing or long-term care facility because of the the horrific conditions that are there. And now with COVID and whatnot, you know, I'm grateful that we have organizations like uh, yours that are, you know, looking into what's going on in nursing homes, in prisons and things like that. But, you know, I, I feel like it's never going to be enough. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Francesca, for uh, your reporting. Really, really appreciate it. Happy yeah. to be here. <laughs> we do want a quick, uh, as a survey piece, we will do further analytics from it. And later in June, we'll open it up again to get a further feedback on what the situation is, how the situation is developing. Do we have any other uh, questions from, from our guests? Marianne, and we also have T. Moorfield there. Um, if you, I'll give you a moment to unmute yourself if you'd like. We're appreciative that we did get a, another question from our other caller here. I do have a question about, uh, so the survey was sent out to how many facilities? Is it uh, nursing homes and long-term living homes and psychi psychiatric homes? And also, like, um, is it juvenile institutes or is it like penitentiaries or like what type of institute do you send it to? Many of the types of congregate settings, like you mentioned, nursing homes, group homes, intermediate care facilities, alternate care facilities, residential facilities, rehabilitation facilities, state veteran homes, homeless and emergency shelters, correctional mm -hmm. facilities, detention, detention and other uh, carceral facilities and mental health facilities. Um, but again, these are folks that are working with individuals outside of those places, so not sending it to those to or those not, settings. Not as service providers in there, but like um, protection and advocacy agencies, okay. triple A centers for independent living, some universities, and so. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Thank you for answering. Well, it's been wonderful to uh, have everyone with us. Uh, this has been a really interesting um, program, and this is the second time you've been with us on a valid podcast. I think you were here the, the third night we started. So uh, it's great to have you back, and we'll uh, look forward to having you back in the future. We know that um, particularly for people with disabilities, this, this is not going to end um, you know, with the reopening of businesses and all, all this sort of thing. It's going to be a while. Um, so we will check back in with you. And um, yeah, that is uh, our show for tonight. Uh, thanks to engineer Nick Tomarello and to our guests. And we'll catch you next time. Don't forget to look for us on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And the Valid Podcast is produced by Unabridged Press and created with support from the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. And of course, as Jennifer said, we are now on Apple Podcasts, so make sure you subscribe and leave a rating. We hope you'll listen and leave your feedback. Thanks, everyone. Good night, everyone. Thank you so good much. Good night. Have a good night. Yeah.